there's no way you're going to stand out when you make average work. We're seeing a decline in skill level for for numerous reasons. I mean, distraction being just one of them. But I think that people want a shortcut. People want to have this you know shorter path to getting attention for their work rather than making work that's worthy of other people's attention. The Strive for More podcast will resonate with those that strive for more in any aspect of their lives. Follow along on one man's journey on the path to a meaningful life through long-form interviews with everyone from successful entrepreneurs, artists, physicians, leading scientists, social media influencers, and professional athletes. This episode of the Strive for More podcast is brought to you by the Strive Accelerator, which is a weekly mastermind group for entrepreneurs. So if you're not seeing the success you want, or you're searching for a community of like-minded business owners, then send an email to jared at striveaccelerator.ca to book a call and learn more. Today's episode is sponsored by the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who have started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. Find the Unmistakable Creative Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Our next guest is the host and founder of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where he has conducted over 700 interviews with thought leaders and people from all walks of life. He is also the author of three books, The Wall Street Journal bestseller, The Art of Being Unmistakable, Unmistakable, Why Only is Better Than Best, and an audience of one, reclaiming creativity for its own sake. This guest work has been featured in the New York Times, Forbes, Inc., Business Insider, and The Blaze. Please welcome to the show, Srini Rao. Well, Srini, thank you so much for joining us today, my man. Yeah, it is my pleasure to be here. Well, you are a man of many talents. You're a passionate surfer. You're a podcaster. You're also a writer. You've got the three books. Interestingly to me, your surfing habit and your writing habit, those started simultaneously. Was there a connection between those two yeah, w- without a doubt. Uh, you know, I think for the longest time, and it's weird because I live in Colorado now. So, like every time I talk about surfing, it's you know it, it, the way I describe it is like you know people who uh, watch surf movies when the surf isn't good as, are, are like people who are watching porn when they're not having sex. Uh, but joking aside, uh, yeah, it had a profound impact on me for several reasons. Um, it, and the thing is, when I started, I didn't really understand the connection or the reasons. It was just one of those things where I was like, wow, I can't believe I get so many good ideas from the time that I spend in the water. But you know, the more that I got further down this path and, and you know, spent time talking to people like Stephen Kotler and really understood sort of flow research, it just started to make a lot of sense because you know, surfing is a phenomenal you know, flow activity because of the fact that it forces you to be completely present. Um, you have no distractions. You really truly are in the moment because you don't have phones. I mean, you know, some people are bringing tech into the water. I'm not a big fan of that. Uh, but, you know, it's one of those rare sort of places that we still have left where you really are truly free from all sources of distraction. And, you know, you're in this you know, medium that has immense amounts of power. And it just, I think that if there's anything that the ocean makes you realize, it's how insignificant you are and uh, how, you know, in any moment, 
it, you know, it can change and it's dynamic and, and, you know, it will hand your ass to you. So, you know, it's, it's basically this, you know, lover that on one day loves you like there's no tomorrow. And the next day treats you like, you know, the boyfriend that's getting you know, kicked to the curb. Um, and I, I think that that's one of those things that it really just shaped me because there's so many metaphors for life in the water. And, I think that it's not a coincidence that my my first book with a publisher ended up being organized in surf metaphors, uh, you know. And it's funny because I had the idea for that book uh, or that concept four years before I wrote the book. I had written it down somewhere in a notebook. And you know, when you write a book with a publisher, if you notice, nonfiction books typically tend to have a very similar sort of structure, and so you have to structure things. And that was one of my weak points as a writer. Uh, it still is. I mean, it, it's funny because my uh, editor at Penguin, when they acquired the the self published book that was successful, she said, you know, I wanted to talk to you about st- the structure of this. There isn't one. And I said, yeah, I know. It was basically a bunch of Facebook status updates compiled into a book that became. A, a Wall Street Journal bestseller, you know, through uh, just a just stroke of luck. Um, but the metaphor, you know, really just stuck because it just worked really well to organize a book and, and really organize ideas. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's not at all a coincidence that those two things uh, happen in parallel. Uh, you know, I, I think that the other thing that came from it is the discipline of surfing was something I brought to the discipline of writing because I was in a very unusual situation in that I just had a lot more time than the average adult does when it came to learning how to surf. First, I was unemployed post-business school, so I had nine months where I did nothing but surf and write. Um, and then I was lucky enough to have a day job where I only had to be there three days a week. So even you know on the days that I did have to be there, I would get up at five in the morning. I would surf for you know, I would write for maybe 45 minutes to an hour. I'd go to the beach, I'd surf for two hours, and then I'd go to work. Um, so I think that it gave me so many different gifts that really have had a profound impact on on all of my creative work. You know, and I'm living in Colorado now, which, you know, unfortunately, there's no surfing. And thanks to COVID, you know, the mountains are open. But, you know, buying a season pass was kind of a, a gamble. It's like, ah, last year, I spent 750 bucks on this damn thing. And then they closed the resorts. And I just wasn't ready to take that gamble. But it is, you know, it is something I feel is missing for my life right now. You know, I think that at some point when COVID ends, I know that water needs to be part of my 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 life and probably swimming will be that replacement. Uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of in a nutshell uh, the impact. Do you think that that impact was due to that disconnection from technology, or do you think it was more about the actual actual connection to nature? I think it's a combination of both. Um, I don't think it's it's one or the other. They're not mutually exclusive because, you know, I mean, I write a lot about attention and it, it's funny, we just surveyed uh, our readers and, you know, top of the list for people in terms of their biggest obstacles was the ability to focus. And so the thing is that that's such a big thing because you can't do anything. Yeah, I mean, hell, you know, you and I have to talk for an hour. That means it requires focus on both our parts, ideally. You know, I mean, if you're a person who, who knows how to do an interview, you know, the only things that exist are you and, and the guest. And um, that's, that's easier said than done when you have so much competing for your attention. Uh, so, but, but I think that there is also some aspect of nature that really, it changes the way that you think when you are in nature, it just, uh, one, I think it just settles the mind in a way that, um, 
you know, being in front of a computer doesn't, right? Because when you're basically inundated with inputs, the, the inevitable result is is anxiety. I, you know, I actually was just in Wisconsin um, with my roommate and his parents for Christmas because I couldn't go home because my parents are in California and, and things were pretty rough there. And one thing that I noticed was that for those entire two weeks that I was there, I'd stopped watching news. And I, it's funny because I was never a person who watched the news until Trump got elected. And then I became a person <laughs> who couldn't stop watching the news because it was such a train wreck. It's suddenly went from being um, something that just was uninteresting to, wow, this is so crazy. It's actually entertaining, uh, yet toxic. And, um, I, and I knew that consciously, but somehow I still fell into that trap of, of watching it. And after the last two weeks, uh, suddenly I just didn't care anymore. And it was wonderful. It was such a great disconnect. I mean, I, I sat around just reading books. It was my think week. Um, and I think that that to me is one of those things that really comes from nature. I think that we're really, really plugged in to the point where uh, it is actually doing a lot of damage. The, the funny thing is technology is a double-edged sword. I, I think that you know you look at somebody like Cal Newport and some might say that his views are extreme and to some degree they probably are. Uh, I know this because I talked to a social scientist recently and I can't for the life of me remember her name because there have been so many people who fall into that category on our show. Um, but she had had a really interesting take on it, which wasn't nearly as extreme, but you know, she kind of said, look, there are social benefits. I mean, if you think about the time that we're in now with all of us sort of quarantined at home, um, unable to see each other, in a lot of ways, you know, being able to connect with people online has been our lifeline. The challenge with that is, is how do you balance it? Because it goes from being a lifeline to like our only source of communication with people. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, I always tell people I'd much rather see you in person than talk to you on the phone or on the internet. Uh, but that that's, you know, harder and harder these days. So I, I think that you know, and there's been a lot of people who've done a lot more detailed research around this. Um, there's a woman named Florence William who actually Williams also has been a guest on our show. She actually wrote a book about uh, this called The Nature Fix and, and the impact that nature has on our creativity. And so I think it's, like I said, a combination of both, not just the technology disconnect, but the impact that nature tends to have on the way that we think. To share a bit of my own experience, I think that so one of my biggest fears was heights and I started rock climbing and then ice climbing in, in the Canadian Rockies. And as I started to overcome those fears, that's also the same parallel for me when that lined up with kind of my entrepreneurial journey. And when I was able to start taking uh, those additional risks in, in entrepreneurship. And so when you're, when you're speaking about that, it just really resonates with me. Yeah, I think that you know, and I wrote this in audience one. I said that you know the the capacity to take physical risks actually equips you to take creative risks. And I've seen what rock climbers do, like just watching people like <laughs> Alex Alex Honnold. I remember I gave a, a talk to um, a, a nonprofit uh, that trained retired special forces guys on how to transition into civilian careers, and they were going ice climbing. I was like, you can count me out for this. <laughs> like, I don't like you know, I don't like the cold. Which ironic, which is is ironic because I'm a snowboarder. But I was like ice climbing. I'm like, yeah, fuck that. That's all you got. <laughs> it's not as crazy as it looks, although it does look crazy. It really does. I'm like, uh, okay, I don't know if I have gloves, and I'm like, and I don't like the cold. And this was in Montana. I was like, yeah, you send me the pictures. I'm not coming. Something that I found interesting from your past is that you you kind of said. When I started the podcast and when I started writing, I would actually go against traditional kind of business recommendations in the sense that they tell you to, to optimize and to delegate $10 tasks, for example. But you actually go through, or you used to at least, go through each of your podcasts and yeah. you would 
edit for how do I improve my storytelling? How do I improve my interviewing skills? Um, I do the same thing, but it's because I'm cheap. And so I, I guess I'm wondering, was that your original purpose was to get better or were you just cheap like me? No, no. It was also because I'm cheap. I'm, I mean, I'm Indian, man. We're frugal. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, so part, of, so part of it was that we just didn't have the resources at the time to, to bring on an editor. Like it just had never occurred to me to hire an editor because I just didn't think about the fact that, oh, I should, you know, um, bring somebody on to do this so I can focus on, on the interviews themselves. Uh, and in all honesty, that was, a, that was a really sort of, you know, fortunate accident because it ended up being a huge blessing in disguise, as you pointed out, because I was forced to go back and review everything so often that, um, it, I mean, I, even now, like, I don't think I have nearly the level of attention to every detail in an interview that I did back then. Uh, you know, part of it is of course that I've gotten better at what I do, so I don't need it as much. And I have a really, really good sound engineer who, um, was just a godsend in terms of, of the kinds of things he's able to do because he's, he can basically do the kinds of things he and I together can do the things that a team of 50 people at NPR do with the two of us. And, you know, cause we started, you know, really kind of going into narrative storytelling, uh, you know, and expanding the format, which is something I'd always wanted to do. I just felt that I didn't have the skills and he had heard me say this in an interview when I was talking to somebody and he just literally sent me a message. He's like, man, why didn't you tell me this? He said, I, this is exactly what I do. I'm a sound designer. He said, you have to structure the story, but he's like, dude, I can make it sound like that. And, um, so that really has been, you know, like I said, a blessing, another just godsend in terms of, of, you know, people we've worked with. And so I think that that was one of those things that was really accidental, but beneficial. But when I, when I talk to people who are just starting out, uh, I actually encourage them to do it because I think that there's a lot to be learned from that. Uh, you know, it, there's just a, so much that you will learn through that process. And, you know, you talk about sort of outsourcing and, you know, handing off tasks to people, if you don't know how to do it yourself when you try to hand it off to somebody, it's actually going to create more work for you. Uh, so, you know, really it comes down to understanding your process and, you know, that's really, you know, right now, like I think the big thing I spend a lot of time is, is thinking about systems and optimizing them to really get to the point where we don't get involved in anything that isn't of, of high value. Because if you look at it, I'm the worth, most worthless person at Unmistakable Creative as far as, as you know, the contributions I make. Like literally there are only three things I do of that are of any value, which is to write, to speak and to interview people. Other than that, all the other sort of surrounding activities are, are you know, ancillary to that, but they have to get done. And so I think that anybody can, can look at what they do in terms of their work and say, okay, what is the part of this that I do that nobody else can do? And to me, there are only three things in the entire company that I do that nobody else can do. Um, but I had to know how to do those things before I could get, you know, all the other things before I could say, okay, somebody else take this over. I mean, even when you're looking at automating systems, which we can talk about, you have to know your process inside and out. Like I, I was telling you, my, my friend who, you know, builds this, uh, who runs this business, helping people build, you know, automated systems with Airtable, even with these huge companies, he said half the battle with these idiots is they don't know their own process, even though they make so much money, you know, he literally has them. When they come to him, they're like, oh, we don't know our process. And he's like, great, we'll show you your process, but we'll charge you an extra $3,000 for this. Um, and it's amazing how much that makes a difference because the thing is that, you know, David Allen had a really good way of saying this. He said, you know, your brain isn't for storing ideas, it's for having them. And, you know, when you are constantly reinventing the wheel for the things that you do all the time, you're basically storing really, really useless information in your brain. 
And um, it's just, you know, it like takes up so much cognitive bandwidth. And so you don't actually get to do the sort of high value zone of genius work that really is your contribution. How do you get that zone of genius work done? Well, for me, it's all centered around rituals and, and routine. Um, I am a creature of habit almost to a fault to the point where I will drive people crazy with the way that I work. Uh, you know, I write a thousand words every day, rain or shine, drunk or sober. I always jokingly say, if, you know, the only the only time I would miss it is if sex or surfing were on the table. And I remember when <laughs> I had a had a woman spend the night, and you know, I was like, it was like ten, nine, I think it was like eight thirty in the morning, and she was sitting in my writing chair. I'm like. Listen, I'm like, unless you're planning on taking me back to bed, can you get out of that chair? I need to do something. Uh, <laughs> and did she? Didn't, didn't she? Did didn't work out with her? But you know, um, I think that that's the that's kind of the nature of, of sort of if you look at creative professionals. It's funny because I, I just finished writing this you know uh, piece that I'm going to turn into an ebook called Twenty One Keys to Keys uh, Twenty One Keys to Creative Productivity, and one of the things I said is you know everything here is a habit, right? Because it all adds up over time. And the more that you spend, more time you spend doing a habit and repeating it, the better you get at it. And so you go from sort of habit to skill to mastery, which is where you get that zone of genius thing. And just to be clear, I am anything but masterful at writing. Um, I think that I am a far better interviewer than I am a writer. I think that, uh, you know, I would say like, you know, writing is something that I do for myself while the podcast is something I do for my audience. You know, fortunately I have an audience for my writing, but I think that far more people listen to my podcast than read my writing. And I think that far people, most people who read my writing and listen to my interviews would probably agree that I'm a far better interviewer than I am a writer. What held you back from taking these steps earlier? I think you, you went to business school, you got some jobs, and then you really didn't start down this path until you were roughly 30. Well, you know, I think that this is um, a very interesting question. I think a big part of it is because of the options that were put in front of me. Uh, you know, I was raised in an Indian family, which, believe it or not, has lots of pros. There are numerous advantages to being raised by Indian parents. Uh, you know, I was I was actually just writing about that the other day. I was like, wow, you know, if it hadn't been for my parents, I wouldn't have self-discipline. So I think that the big thing that comes from Indian parents is intrinsic motivation because every Indian kid has a story of going to school, finding out some white kid gets paid $5 for every A, coming home and having, you know, <laughs> trying, trying to like that negotiate that trying to negotiate that deal with his parents only to have them say, that's great. You get a meal on the table and a roof over your head. Let's, you know, end this negotiation. <laughs> but that was an invaluable lesson because what it taught you was not the sake of doing something excellent for the sake of an external reward, but for the sake of just doing it. And that always stayed with me. But as far as why not go down the path sooner? Even part of being raised in that culture, and I think part of being raised in the culture in general, you know, um, as parents of, of, you know, kids who like, if you have parents who are relatively upper middle class or middle class, like they're, you know, they have a very predefined idea of a life path, which is you go to school, you get a job, you go to grad school, you get a better job. And that's the path that was put in front of me. The problem was that for me, you know, for most people, when they follow that path, they end up with pretty average results. Sometimes they end up with extraordinary results. Mine were abysmal. I got fired from every job I had. Um, I never got job offers after internships. And I think that in a lot of ways, more than anything, I was forced to go down this path because there were no other options. And so, you know, what I would sum it up is saying that the, the options in front of you tend to blind you to the possibilities that surround you. The other thing also is timing played a huge role in this because 
I went to a college at a time when none of this was possible. You have to remember this is the you know late 90s when all of the stuff that you use today to create podcasts that everybody uses to write blogs, all this stuff was being invented then. You know, the internet was in its infancy and you couldn't do what you can today without, you know, tons of technical expertise and uh, you know fortunes, but um, you know, by the time we'd hit 2009 and I mean you look now even compared to then it's so much easier, but at that point anybody could start a blog, you could, you know, record stuff, you could publish it to iTunes. Uh, you didn't need a lot of technical skills then. Uh, you know, and, and don't get me wrong. Like I think that you know the people who have technical skills have a huge edge when it comes to this. Um, but you have this gap between creativity and technology that just got narrower and narrower, and it's moving to the point where it's no longer it's not going to exist, right? Because when somebody like Steven Sutterberg can make a feature length film on an iPhone, you know that we have come really far in 10 years. So just imagine what the next 10 years are like. You know, I think Kevin Kelly said that the next 10 years will bring more technological innovation and change than the previous 50. And you're kind of seeing it. The pace at which things are changing is is much more insane than it was. Um, you, you have this sort of acceleration that we've never seen in probably the last 10 years. And in a lot of ways, I think for creative people, it's displacing some of them, but I think it's making a lot life much easier for a lot of them. The fact that you have AI tools to edit, you know, things, AI tools to help you write a damn landing page. That's kind of insane. Um, you know, these are things that were so much more complicated back then. So that was another part of it. So I, I would say there are two things really it was one was just timing. And then the other was, you know, what I was taught, you know, what I was taught for, for how to make your way about how to make your way in the world. This just wasn't really something viable. Um, we were just taught, you know, you get a job, you get a steady paycheck. And the other thing I, I want to say about this though, is that I think that one of the big disservices that we do in this sort of self-help, you know, personal development, entrepreneurial uh, ecosystem is to tell people that that's a bad life, you know, that there's something yes. wrong with that. And I think that that's not true. Um, there are plenty of people who I think live perfectly good lives. Who's to say that the person who gets a steady, you know, paycheck, you know, spends time with their family on the weekend isn't actually happier than the entrepreneur who's starving himself to death to try to make some venture a reality. You know, you can't say that that's not a, you know, it, so I, I think it, it, you have to consider context in all of these situations for, you know, some people that might be a perfectly acceptable life. And I think that there's a danger in us planting seeds of dissatisfaction where there weren't any before. Yeah, I, I see that in my own life. And I think that I often think about that trade-off between satisfaction with the status quo versus striving for more, for different, yeah. for entrepreneurship. And what's the balance between those two? It's it's not an it's individualistic. It's not just a, a blanket statement for somebody. Well, it's like uh, like this in the movie Finding Forrester. It's not a soup question. What do you mean? So there's um <clears throat> there's a, this there's a great movie like uh, with uh, Sean Connery and, and I don't remember the kid's name. He's basically this black kid who goes to a prep school um, because he's a talented basketball player, but he also happens to be really smart and a brilliant writer. And uh, ta Sean Connery actually ends up mentoring him as a writer. And so, you know, they have all these conversations, like one of them is what kind of soup do you like? But then they get into, you know, sort of the deeper questions about life and meaning. And, and there's a phrase that comes up over and over again, which is, well, that's not exactly a soup question. You spoke about this technological speed that we're entering into where, where the change is just going to become even more rapid. How do you personally stay creative in that world? 
Well, so this actually is is interesting because the thing that I really well, there, there are two things that have always stayed with me in terms of, of the conversations that I've had. Um, I had this really phenomenal mentor named Greg Hartle who played an instrumental role in getting Unmistakable Creative to where it's at. Like I wouldn't be where I am without him, uh, with the contributions he made. And one thing that he used to do, so he basically, he went around the country to work one-on-one with 500 people, um, walked out of his door with nothing but $10 and a laptop. And the goal was to visit all 50 states, work with 500 people and start a business in an industry he knew nothing about. The only caveat being his constraint was the only resources he could use to do that were the $10 and the laptop. And so it's a crazy story. But one of the things that he would ask people um, when he met them was, do you know how to use the internet? <laughs> Which, you know, it sounds so stupid on the question, you know, on the surface, it's like, of course I know how to use the internet. And then the follow-up question was, okay, great. Show me something that you've made using the internet. And so when I look at new technology, my first default question, and, you know, I've been tinkering with this stuff since the days of blogger. Like my instinct is always, oh, this is cool. I wonder what I could make with this. Um, And so I think that that's one default question that always comes up in my mind when I see new technology. Like I don't see it as, oh, this is the next hot platform to be on. This is how I'm going to spread the message. It's more, oh, how could I use this to create something? The other question, and this comes from Julian Smith, uh, who is now the the founder of a startup called Breather, but uh, had one of the most popular blogs on the internet, wrote a couple of best-selling books. He always said that when you see new technology, the question you, you really want to ask is, what does this make possible that wasn't before? And so, you know, every couple of years we go through sort of a paradigm shift where you have convergence of multiple technologies that make something possible that wasn't before. So if you go back to early to late 90s, right, in the infancy of the internet, um, you know, the porn industry, surprisingly, if you've never seen the movie Middlemen, figured out how to take a credit card over the internet. Mark Andreessen basically made it possible to create a web browser that anybody could use. So now you've got the intersection of a browser credit card processing. And the result of that is Amazon, eBay, and and e-commerce as we know it today, which wasn't possible before those technologies converged. Now, if you fast forward to say, you know, 2008, when you got the iPhone, well, then this one was definitely Julian's biggest insight was, you know, he said, you know, when you had the iPhone, you had a convergence of GPS a mobile phone and a number of other technologies like, um, you know, the ability to unlock electronic locks, um, you know, the ability to track location. So suddenly you get DoorDash, Uber, Airbnb. And, and for Julian, that meant creating Breather, which literally allows you to use your phone to unlock temporary office spaces in the city if you don't want to go to a coffee shop. And what you're going to see going forward is the convergence of all of this stuff, right? Now you have, you know, artificial intelligence as a layer on top of it, desktop publishing. So I think that really the key to staying creative as technology advances is not necessarily to figure out, okay, how do I use this thing? But how do I, you know, what can I make with it? Because how you use it is getting easier and easier and easier, right? To the point where the technical knowledge of how to use a tool is going to be far less valuable than what you might create with that tool. Do you think creativity is actually becoming more of a commodity because it's less possible due to all the distractions that we're facing? I don't think it's becoming a commodity as much as it is. Um, there's somewhat of a paradox here, right? You know, I said, uh, and I said this in audience of one where I said that the paradox is that, you know, technology makes it possible to be more creative than we've ever been in our lives. And paradoxically, it also inhibits our ability to be creative because of the fact that it is 
uh, a huge source of distraction. So I think it's like resolving the tension between those two things is what we as creatives really have to spend our time doing. You know, is it, oh, do I update my Facebook status or do I go, you know, work on writing the next chapter of a book? Um, you know, do I, do I get on Twitter? And, you know, don't get me wrong. Like, I, I think there's value in these things. To me, I use Facebook 90% as just a feedback mechanism to see, you know, what people think about things that I'm writing just to get a sense for, okay, is this resonating? This is not. Um, and so I just put snippets out to see what happens. But uh, beyond that, you know, I think that you go back to sort of Cal Newport and deep work. I think that uh, creativity isn't becoming commoditized per se, but I think people's creative abilities are being hindered by the fact that they are so distracted and they've got so many different things that are competing for their inputs. And uh, Hunter Walk, I, and I, I don't know Hunter personally, but he had this really interesting post the other day on Medium about seasons and looking at sort of, you know, approaching your creative work in seasons, you know, and off seasons. And um, as opposed to having to be on every platform at every moment, I mean, that's, that's exhausting. You know, I was, I was just watching the uh, David Letterman interview with Kim Kardashian last night. And it, what's interesting about that is, is it completely changed my entire perception of Kim Kardashian. I was like, oh, she's not the, you know, waif, you know, bimbo that I thought she was. She's actually pretty goddamn smart. Um, and she's, she's smart. She's compassionate. I mean, she's going to law school. Um, basically because she found out that, you know, the, when she got that person off of, uh, you know, a death sentence, she actually learned that, oh, I need lawyers with me. And so, and her dad was a lawyer. So she actually decided to, you know, enroll in law school. And, and it, it, she was explaining it to Letterman. She said, it's not some, even though it's online, she's like, it requires 20 hours a week in a law office. So it's like, oh, wait a minute, this woman is no dummy. Um, but I, I mean, he was talking to her about social media and, and how much time it takes, you know, and. So funny enough, if I would go back and do one thing different, it would be to spend a hell of a lot less time on social media and a lot more time on my content. Um, because I think that, you know, we have this mis, you know, mis, mis like misperception of, of, you know, promotion and creation. So some people are like, oh, you should spend 80% of the time, you know, uh, promoting the content you create. And Ryan Holiday actually challenges that in perennial salaries. Like it's just, it's bad advice because you know, there's so many people doing that and it's, there's no way you're going to stand out when you make average work. Um, so I think really where it's not the commoditization of creativity, but I think it's more than anything, we're seeing a decline in skill level for, for numerous reasons. I mean, distraction being just one of them, but um, I think that people want a shortcut. People want to have this, you know, shorter path to getting attention for their work rather than making work that's worthy of other people's attention uh, because that takes time. You know, there's that, that's, that's, you know, the, you know, 10 years of work, 10,000 hours of work to get to mastery. Who the hell wants to do that when you can just go on social media, get some attention from somebody and be like, all right, cool. People are paying attention. Um, and if you get this like short-term boost of validation and, you know, to, to refer back to Ryan Holiday, I remember him saying he's, you know, he doesn't talk about a, a book until it's finished. And if you think about it every day, like people are announcing the books they're going to start, the projects they're going to ship all day long on Facebook. And, you know, most of them never do. Um, and, you know, so my sort of take on that is, listen, nobody gives a shit what you're going to start. All that counts is what you finish. You know, and so uh, that's that's really what if we could sum this up in one way, it would be that it's not that, you know, creativity is, is you know being commoditized as much as it is. People are, you know, talking so much about their work rather than doing it. You spoke about the quick fix. How do I get that? A quick fix? Um, no, yeah, I'm there kidding. Yeah, there is no one. <laughs> you, you've had these incredible guests on your podcast, you know, folks like Seth Godin and Tim Ferriss. How do you balance 
synthesizing that information and taking that into your kind of daily routine and your thought processes versus coming up with new information? This is a great question because, um, you know, I, I think that the funny thing about getting to interview the people I do, and keep in mind, the most interesting people I interview are the ones that nobody has ever heard of. Um, like I will prioritize a interesting person over a famous person every single time. Um, you know, the thing is we may not be the biggest, you know, outlet in the world, but we damn sure are one of the most exclusive. Like we have made our criteria damn near impossible for people to hack. I book publicists hate my guts because they're like, I don't understand what you look for. I'm like, all I look for is the things I'm curious about. So there's no way in hell you're going to know that. You know, like we turned down Gary Vaynerchuk. People are always stunned by that. Um, you know, like I will say no to people that everybody will happily say yes to. And I have nothing against Gary personally. Like I don't know him, but I just didn't, you know, his work didn't resonate with me. And I was like, eh, I'm like not interested. Um, so that's a big, big part of this. Now, as far as, as the, the synthesizing goes, uh, you know, I joke that, you know, part of the the issue with self-help in general, right, which yeah, I, I think my work, as much as I hate to admit it, falls partially into that category, is that you have this idea that, okay, if I read this book, I'm going to get this result by doing what this person says. Now, if this were true, and I only know this because I'm writing a new book called Not Another Damn Self-Help Book, um, and uh, it's sort of a contrarian take on this. And I said, you know, if, if, if if the books that I've read and the people I interviewed were a reflection of the outcomes in my life, I would be a billionaire with a six pack and a harem of women. I'm none of those things, you know? And so I think it's about sort of looking at, okay, that's great. You know, that worked for Tim. Will it work for me? And, and sort of saying, let me test this idea. Let me strip out what resonates as opposed to following anybody's ideas to the letter. I think that that was the core thesis of, of what ended up, you know, sort of leading to the idea, the big mission and message of unmistakable was that, um, you know, you can't copy somebody else's path to success and expect yours to turn out the same. Um, because you know, there's one giant variable in that equation that throws off that formula and that's you. Uh, and somehow we overlook that. Um, you know, I see it all the time. You know, I remember one of my friends sent me a list of 10 or so, uh, you know, clients of hers and, and all of them were graduates of Marie Forleo's B-School program. Uh, and what's interesting to see is, as you know, and Laura Belgray, Marie's copywriter has actually said this on, on our own podcast when I asked her about this, because I, at first I was afraid to call it out publicly, but now that, you know, we've exposed it, she actually said, yeah, it's true. I remember this friend sent me 10 websites, uh, and I opened them all up in separate tabs. And I was like, I don't understand what hell any of these people do. And it seems like they all do the same thing. Uh, and so that to me was one of those things that really drove how I thought about this. Now, you know, the synthesis part is so interesting because I am so in that process right now of trying to figure that out myself of, okay, how do I really put this to work? Like I'm in uh, Nat Ellison's um, Rome Effortless Output course because I, you know, I want to be able to make connections between ideas. But I think the real, if anything, more than, any, more than anything, I think my greatest value in terms of synthesizing is that I write about this stuff. You know, I write about the things that I read. I write about the things that I learn in my interviews, which coincidentally are almost always informed by the books that I read. So that really helps. You know, I, I did this like 9,000 word article on, on, that's on Medium called The Psychology of Building an Audience. Um, you know, and even my literary agent said, she's like, this is one of your best pieces yet. So it's like, okay, coming from her, that meant a lot. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, really, I think more than anything, that that writing really is a tool for for synthesizing information for me. Um, it helps me kind of make sense of all of this because 
you know, when you've done what I've done, your brain is like this encyclopedia that's waiting to explode and I have to get it out somehow or I'll lose my mind. Um, and you know, to me, I think the other thing is like, I, I view each of these people as, as having something to teach me. Um, and so, you know, I look for something like some nugget that I'm like, okay, cool. That that's interesting. I wonder how that would apply to my life. Not, Hey, how do I take every single thing this person has said and, you know, copy it to the T. From an outsider's perspective, from my shoes, I think there's a lot of value in getting your perspective on a wide variety of perspectives. Like you're able to distill all of that information down into kind of one handy guidebook, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, I think that that's been the the greatest blessing is the sheer diversity of people that I talk to uh, is, is what I think has really informed my creative work. You know, Robert Greene had a great metaphor for this. Um, he said, you know, the analogy is biodiversity. He said, the more species that you have in an ecosystem, the richer that ecosystem. And unfortunately, my, you know, ecosystem is filled with bank robbers, drug dealers, performance psychologists, bestselling authors, and billionaires and porn stars. It seems like our knowledge around mental strength, mental... Uh, fortitude, mental hacks, quote unquote, has really grown kind of exponentially over the last decade. Just to give you an example, I use something that David Goggins does where it's, you know, he calls it the stealing souls method. And it just allows you to really push through in situations where maybe you don't feel the same kind of motivation. And it's it's been a huge improvement in the quality of my life. I'm wondering for you, do you have any mental strategies, frameworks, or tactics that you think really contribute to your success, not just in business, but uh, in the quality of your life? So this is a great question. Um, it's timely, you know, like I, I had a, a pretty difficult experience over Christmas that I don't want to talk about because it's fairly private, but um, it, the, the thing is that what difficult experiences make you realize is that everything that we write about, we talk about in personal development, um, you know, these mental models, these frameworks for diversity, it's all easier said than done, especially when something bad happens to you, right? Or to somebody that you care about. It's kind of like, oh, suddenly these, suddenly the reality of, of the fact that so many of these things come across as platitudes um, becomes very apparent because, you know, when something is happening to you, it's the worst thing in the world because it's happening to you. Um, you know, I mean, who doesn't understand that we have a choice, you know, between how, about how we're going to respond or react to adversity. We all know that consciously. Does that mean we're able to practice it when something bad happens to us? No, not necessarily because we're human. I think the fact that we are infallible, um, and that we are, you know, capable of feeling pain and emotion is, is what makes us human. So, you know, I want to I want to keep put that out there as a caveat when we're thinking about this. You know, one thing I, I wrote this on Facebook the other day. I said, you know, when bad things happen to people, don't give them advice unless they ask for it. Um, you know, in fact, it's cruel to give people advice when bad things happen to them because at moments like that, the only thing they need from you is to listen. You know, they don't like. I remember I had a friend after a breakup who was a coach who called me, and I was like. I don't want a fucking life coach. I want you to be my friend. <laughs> I just want you to shut up and listen to me and listen to me whine about this girl. Um, you know, know that, you know, you want to walk me through your framework for how you get people through tough things, but that's not what I need right now. Um, and so that that's the, the thing that I, I would say, keep in mind. Now, <clears throat> The other thing that, you know, like if we look at sort of, you know, frameworks for me, one thing is to think about this, okay, in, in the long run, like what's the impact of this going to be, you know, 
five years from now, 10 years from now, like you zoom out and that's, that's one thing that helps. And the funny thing is the thing that seems like the biggest problem in the world at the moment suddenly is like a, a speeding ticket, you know, five years from now, because it's not like the problems go away. You know, my, my mentor, Greg used to say, like the problems don't go away. They magnify what changes is your capacity to handle them. You know, do you really think that Mark Zuckerberg's life is free of problems because of the success of Facebook? No, you know, now he has to deal with, you know, election meddling, you know, people who want to sue him. It's, I mean, the world of shit that he's created for himself is far greater than it was probably when they were like, oh, our problem is we don't have enough users, you know, like think about the, the you know, monster he's created. Like now he has problems that he can't even figure out how to solve, uh, you know, like they've created something that's so big that it's out of their control. Uh, and you don't anticipate that. I think that that's one thing that people overlook. It's like, oh, when I get to X level, you know, I mean. I'm telling you, man, in the last 10 years, I've had friends who've turned their backs on me. I've paid out settlements to make people go away. Um, you know, bridges burned. You know, people I thought would be part of my life for the rest of my life or not. And that's tough, you know, and, and sometimes you make very difficult trade-offs, you know, um, to do what you need to do because you outgrow people. Uh, and that's just, that's hard. I mean, that's just reality. Nobody likes to talk about this stuff because it's ugly, right? But go look at the founding stories of any Silicon Valley company. You'll see plenty of backstabbing and, um, you know, even if you go read the founding Twitter book, there was a fourth guy in the Twitter story who didn't get shit from the, the success of Twitter, uh, you know, even though he was early, he was there for all of it. Uh, and so that's, that's, you know, how this goes. Like nobody starts out with the intention of any of this stuff happening. It just does. You know, it's a natural byproduct of your evolution. Um, but I think that, you know, we go to the sort of the, the standard strategies of meditation. Um, I think that your social circles are really important. And then your environment. That's a big one for me is, is you know, making sure that you're diligent about the environment that you live and work in and making sure it's a place that really does light you up and, and make you feel good because you don't want, you know, some shithole to live in while you're, you know, going through a tough time. Uh, I only know this because I did it and it was a disaster um, that like if you went back and listened to the interviews from that time. Like it's very obvious there was something wrong with me. Um, yeah, I mean, even one of my friends pointed it out. So, yeah, I mean, I, like I said, man, the, the thing to me we, we have to keep in mind is that, you know, this is all easier said than done. And I want people to acknowledge that more than we say, oh, okay, just, you know, be tough, be resilient. Um, and, you know, the other thing is it's, you know, you got to consider context, right? You look at somebody like David Goggins, like, of course, David Goggins is tough as fucking nails. I mean, look what he's gone through. Who <laughs> wouldn't be tough after that experience, you know? Um, that's, I, like I love that book, but I also think that we have to consider context, you know, when we think about this advice, and that's often what is overlooked so much in, in so much of this advice is that context isn't taken into consideration. So what you're telling me is that I cannot just be a Navy SEAL after I've read that book. Try it and let me know how it turns out. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> and actually, um, I've gotten one award in my life, and it was just for the whiniest person after a breakup. So I really resonated with what you're saying about, you know, complaining about a woman. Yeah. Well, that, that's a whole, we could talk for three hours about that. Yeah. <laughs> you always get interviewed so often. I know that. And you get asked the same questions and over and over. Is there any question you just wish someone asked you? That's actually a really hard question. <clears throat> Believe it or not, I don't get interviewed that often. Um, I think that like <clears throat> I'm the most connected person that nobody ever's ever heard of, <laughs> as funny as that sounds. Uh yeah, it's it's one of the reasons, you know, people always like, you know, I remember one of my friends, I think it was Justine Musk, she's like, you know, she's like, it sucks to be interviewed by you because everybody after that, every other one sucks in comparison, which I was like, okay, that's flattering. Um, I actually don't like doing interviews for, the, for that very reason. I mean, you're asking good questions and I'm actually enjoying our chat. Um, 
but a lot of people don't ask good questions. Uh, so I, I don't know off the top of my head, like what that would be. Um, because you know, you had 10 years of, of sort of a body of work behind you. There's so much you could find about me everywhere and anywhere at this point, you know, like I don't have privacy anymore, uh, to the degree that I did, you know, it's, it's funny. So I was watching, uh, I, in case you can't tell, I'm obsessed with this David Letterman show. <laughs> um, he's just such a good interviewer and, and the guests he brings on, but he had, um, this really famous, uh, Indian actor named Shah Rukh Khan on the show. I don't know if you know who Shah Rukh Khan is, but Shah Rukh Khan is like outside of America, more famous than Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise and everybody else. Like he's, you know, a billionaire. He owns a cricket team in India. Um, but what was so, so striking about, uh, you know, that, that interview to me was, you know, he was talking about uh, his relationship with his wife, his kids, and, and sort of, you know, this person who, you know, when you walk out of a door in a country of a billion people, like, and you're that famous, just imagine, you know, how much you're hounded. Like he can stand on a, uh, you know, basically from his window and then blow kisses and people are, you know, sort of that. But he was saying, he's like, I'm actually a really shy person. And the, but the thing that stayed with me most was that he said that, you know, he said that, you know, the, the person that I've created in the public is a myth. And he said, and the truth is I'm an employee of the myth of Shah Rukh Khan. And I loved that, you know, that just stayed with me in so many ways. Cause I thought, you know, that that's, that's any artist who becomes successful is a myth of the employee. There is an employee of the myth that they've created, I think. And I'm nowhere near, you know, that famous or well-known, um, you know, there's, you know, this interesting sort of dichotomy between a public persona and, and, you know, who you are in private. And, that's that gets to be more and more complicated as, as you progress more and more because it's not as straightforward. Uh, you know, you get to say whatever the hell you want, do whatever the hell you want. Like when you're early out starting, you get so much freedom in a way that you don't quite have as more and more people know about your work. And I think people don't embrace that nearly enough. Like, you know, being an amateur is actually a beautiful time for, you know, creative expression and, and freedom because you get to play with no consequences. You know? now I have to actually think about the things that I say, think about the things that I write, be careful about having some semblance of filters. And at the same time, try to figure out how to balance that with some semblance of authenticity. Um, you know, Tim John interviewed me for uh, his podcast, World of Human. And, and you know, one of the, he titled it, you know, we don't want hundred percent authenticity. And I think that's true, you know, because nobody in the public eye is hundred percent authentic because it's just not possible. Uh, when you're a public figure, because some part of your life has to be private and is simply not meant for public consumption. And you have to figure out what that is. You know, you have to decide what that line is going to be. Uh, like if you notice one thing you'll, you'll notice in Seth Godin uh, and in interviews, there are two things that never come up in a Seth Godin interview or in any of his work, his wife and his son. Um, like you've never heard Seth mention his family once. And I remember somebody asked him about that once, and, and that's a conscious choice. And, and you know what? I think he probably, you know, when you're at the level of Seth, he probably does that for the sake of their sanity. You know, um, Shah Khan's wife said, she's like, you know, I realized that, you know, um, marrying this guy meant that he wasn't going to just be mine, but I would have to share him with billions of people. Yeah. Uh, so I think that that's, that's you know, I, I, not, not necessarily a question you didn't ask me, but something just came up as, you know, <clears throat> you mentioned that. What's off the table for you? How do you maintain that sanity? Well, I think, you know, I'm getting to the point where my family, it's funny because I do write a lot about my family, but there are things where I know that, you know, this would be a violation of, of you know, their boundaries, their privacy and things that are really precious to them. So I'm careful about that. Um, I think that that's where, where I draw the line. You know, I mean, 
it's funny because, you know, like having had the Netflix Indian matchmaking thing, even my dating life, I'm like, okay, this is bizarre. Uh, you know, somebody asked me the other day, do you have opportunities to meet women that you wouldn't have otherwise? And I'm like, yes, of course. Um, but I'm also wary of that because, you know, that can be the undoing of everything that, you know, I've worked so hard to do. Um, if I fuck something up, like it's just, you have to tread that place delicately. You know, it, it's such a, it's a delicate balance of, okay, you know, am I, you know, am I like, you know, am I crossing a line here? Um, and can, could I, could crossing this line come back to haunt me? Uh, which it easily could, like you see this happen all the time to, to, you know, athletes and, uh, you know, artists and all that stuff. So that's another one of those where the line is in that one, the line is still kind of blurry to me. And then the thing that's hard is you, know, you can, it's very easy to confuse the fact that somebody admires you for your work with some the fact that they admire you for you. You know, like I've had podcast listeners who set me up on dates and, you know, when they do it's, and it doesn't go well, they're like, you weren't, you know, what I thought you were going to be. I'm like, okay, you got to remember, like, you know, Srini on the podcast is a character I play to some degree. It's not who I am in every moment of my life. You know, like I actually, uh, here's another one around that. I actually, when I'm dating somebody, I actually ask them not to read my books or look at any of my work until we've gotten to know each other. Um, Cause I'm like, I don't want you to see that yet. Like, cause yeah, I mean, my creative expression is like the best version of who I am, but that's not me every moment. You mentioned not fucking this up on behalf of all your listeners and all your readers. Don't fuck this up. Thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> Can I end just with one last question? Success is so hard, and I don't want to define it in terms of monetary terms or economic terms. For you, what do you think is holding you back from that next level of success in terms of relationships and contribution and impact and well-being and partly financial as well? So this is such a, a deep and, and nuanced question, right? Um, first, let, let's dispel this whole next level illusion um, right now, because, and again, you know, like credit where credit is due. Ryan Holiday kind of told me this. You know, Ryan has what like eight books on the New York Times bestseller list right now, and he writes a new one every year, and he's just like, you know, he's killing it. Um, and yet, what he told me, he said, is that you know, you live this constant life of dissatisfaction when you're always like, oh, the next level, like it's the next level that'll, you know, make me satisfied and, and make me happy. Um, because, you know, when you get there, what you realize is like, it's all a false horizon, right? Because then you get there and there's another next level. And then there's another next level, like you, you become a millionaire and that's like, oh, there are people who have $10 million. Yeah. And this is just hedonic adaptation at work. You know, anything that's novel eventually becomes normal. You know, whatever, like whatever level of success you achieve, eventually that becomes your new normal. So when I got a book deal, you know, for years, it was like, oh, this is the dream. I was like, I could, I thought, you know, I'll be in cloud nine forever. And then, you know, I end up at, at Penguin Portfolio, which is the imprint that, you know, Ryan and Seth and Simon and, you know, authors who are far more famous than I am have published in. And I'm like, wow, I'm the redheaded stepchild of the imprint. I was the mistake they made, <laughs> you know? Uh, because I'm not, you know, my books haven't sold nearly as well. And I think that you have to come to terms with that at some point that, you know, you, the next level is basically nothing but a constant way to compare yourself to other people. Um, so I don't even know what that next level is necessarily anymore. Um, other than the fact that I don't think there is one. And to me, what I want, you know, here's the thing that happens, right? When you get successful in any capacity, what that does is it gives you the opportunity to keep doing the thing that you love. It's not, hey, now I get to, you know, stop working, sit on a beach and count my cash, drinking, you know, 
Mai Tais or whatever the hell it is you want to drink, it's okay, cool. I get to keep doing this thing that I love because it's an infinite game. You know, all success does is it keeps extending the lifeline for you to keep playing. So you get paid for your creative work. You get to keep doing that work. And I think to me, that's really what it is. Somebody asked me once, you know, what is your goal in writing books? And it was, well, if my books are successful, it'll give me the opportunity to write more books. Now, my books haven't been successful enough to get another book deal with a publisher, but, you know, I'm done with waiting for their permission, which is a whole other, you know, aside that we could get into at some point. But um, I think that that's really what you have to think about in, in terms of all of this, right? I mean, the other thing is that, you know, my life circumstances have been anything but normal. Like most people don't spend, you know, seven plus years at, at the age of 30 living with their parents. That just doesn't happen. Um, you know, and that definitely delayed the trajectory of my life and, and where I wanted to go with it. And, you know, when I, I mentioned this, to one of my best friends from college, she always says, Srini, it's not a race to the death. You know, what are you going to do? You know, and that, that always has stayed with me. It was a really important thing because you got to remember, you know, I went to school at Berkeley, so you can imagine what kinds of things my friends have achieved in their lives, like the people I went to school with. Um, most of them are graduates of every top school you could possibly imagine, doctors, lawyers, engineers, you know, some of them have done very well financially, if not well, you know, they're very, very comfortable. Uh, so I, I think that that to me is really, you know, the thing to think about. But I'll tell you what has always stayed with me, and, and this also again came from our interviews. Um, I interviewed this woman named Anisha Takor, who you know had been a financial advisor and, and had worked with a number of billionaires, and she actually told me that the thing that we're missing is our own definition of how much is enough. And I think that that ultimately is what makes somebody successful is coming up with their own definition of of how much is enough, like how how you know how how much of an audience is enough to let you do what you want to do you know how much is a big you know how big enough how much is a big enough audience um you know how much is enough money in your bank account and the thing is that we pick really arbitrary goals that really don't have any basis on on sort of why we want them we just think oh billionaire millionaire it's like you've just got this arbitrary number that you've picked with no idea of why you want that thing or what you're going to do with it. You know, like I always jokingly say, like the only thing I could think of that I would use a billion dollars for is to buy an NBA basketball team. Like that is my one sort of billion dollar crazy <laughs> fantasy. Um, is Who you, you buy? It's a good question. I mean, I'm in Colorado, so we keep joking about the nuggets. And the funny thing is, man, I don't even watch sports, but I play sports video games religiously. Um, so the... The thing, you know, but the thing is, like, will my life be okay if I don't ever get to own an NBA team? Which is probably not likely. You know, I'm 40 years old. I don't think that, you know, barring some crazy life event, I'm probably not going to own an NBA team in this life. Uh, you know, and, and I remember my friend Joseph was like, "What do you want from that?" I was like, "I want box seats, or I want seats on the fucking court." You know, like next to you know next to Jack Nicholson. And I was like, "You don't need a billion dollars for that." Jack Nicholson doesn't even have a billion dollars. Srini. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. You are someone that has really just achieved so many remarkable things in all of the creative pursuits that you've, you've had the podcast, the books, and you're just somebody that seems to constantly strive for more. And so I am just beyond grateful that you sat down with us today for the listeners. If you want to learn more about unmistakable creative, you can find them on their website at unmistakablecreative.com. Find every episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can find them on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Unmistakable Creative. Srini, thank you so much for joining us, my friend. Uh, thank you for having me. You asked great questions. 
if you like this episode, you might also like episode number 21 with James Mel, who's one of the most prominent names in online entrepreneurship, where we talk about how he networked his way onto Tony Robbins' private island. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please stay tuned for more stories from successful entrepreneurs, artists, influencers, and sports and medical moguls. Please know that I've got your back and the world needs you to go out there and create, innovate, and iterate. If you like this episode, then please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. You can also find Strive Accelerator on Instagram at Strive Accelerator and find show notes and all of our free content on our website at striveaccelerator.com. I always want to hear feedback from listeners, so please shoot me an email at jared at striveaccelerator.ca.